Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. And the word of the Lord reads this way. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. If you are thankful for it this morning, join me in saying thanks be to God. God. Brothers and sisters, there is a miracle here amongst us. Chris is wearing a suit jacket. It's happening. It's happening. Praise God, who does all things well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull an old school move. Turn around and say hi to somebody. You don't have to leave your pew, but just turn around. Look at them. Look at each other. Smile at them. Rusty, turn around and look at somebody and smile at them. <laughs> Steven. There's Steven. Hello. Wave at each other. Bruce, chill. Bruce is about ready to give hugs. Easy, Bruce. Air hugs. <laughs> Bruce was my favorite thing about COVID. He didn't care. He just gave hugs all day long. My favorite thing. That's right, brother. That's right. I am going to um, back up uh, from our scripture reading this morning and include the scripture that Pastor Matt ended with last Sunday. Um, I'll read it for you. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may be not put out of joint, but rather healed. How many of you have uh, run a race of some kind? How many of you have ever run at all? <laughs> Yike. <laughs> Need to start praying for more miracles. Uh, running's hard, right? Um, I've run a long time. Uh, my my father-in-law... Jeff is actually the one who kind of got me into running. He was a runner because of the Air Force. You know, um, most military people, they, they do that. Um, so I've been running for you know, a long time. Running is never something I necessarily have loved to do. I don't call myself a runner because those are the people that wear the really short shorts and are like nothing but skin and sinewy muscle. You know, they look like a piece of beef jerky and they can run like an antelope. Like, those are runners. The people I hear running at four in the morning outside of my house, like, God be with you. Like, more power to you. Um, I like to run, though. Right? And running is, running is good. There's been times when I've felt that runner's high. But at the end of the day, when you run, whether you're running just for exercise or whether you're training for a race, or you're in the middle of that race, there's those points in that race where it's, running's just hard. You can tell yourself all the stuff you want to tell yourself about being a runner or getting a runner's high or all the glory. You can listen to chariots of fire in your ears. You can have the best shoes. You can have the best training regimen. At the end of the day, though, when you're running a race, 
And if you've been in that situation, maybe you've run, um, you know, a 10K or something. Uh, I ran one full marathon and said, forget that. Um, that was years ago. Now I've run, I think I've run a dozen or more half marathons and a bunch of little ones. And there's times in the midst of that race, and it happens all the time, every time I run, no matter how short or how long the distance is, where it comes down to me having to say, this really sucks. This is really hard. And I have a decision to make. I can either persevere and press on, or I can stop. Those are your options in a race, right? You can slow the pace a little bit, okay, and there might be some need for that, and there might be, spiritually speaking, some need for that, maybe. Usually, though, if you have to do that, aside from injury in the midst of a race, it's because you haven't trained well enough. That's why training is important. But you, usually it comes down to you can either keep running or you can stop. Those are your options. Um, when, I, when I've run the Air Force half marathon, there's this van that goes around that everybody calls the van of shame because it's a, a big passenger van of folks that have either gotten injured or can't finish, and it, it goes driving by, and it's all steamy because everybody's been sweating, and everybody in there is just like this. Just a very sad sight. And once that van goes by, everybody picks up the pace, and they're like, not me. I am not going in the van of shame. Every time I ever run a race, my wife says, last thing she says to me, hope you don't get put in the van of shame, you know? That's my greatest nightmare. There's reasons why the Apostle Paul calls the Christian life or likens the Christian life to a race, right? Paul used analogies that were around him, whether it was um, the Roman armor as he depicts the spiritual armor or whether it is the ideas of an athlete as he sees um, the birth of the Olympic Games and the greatness of the Greek athletes. Paul says that we are like runners in a race, and the author of Hebrews gives us that same kind of analogy here. Chapter 12 started off, and we heard this a couple weeks ago. I'll read it for you so you can remind you. This idea of running a race, and this is the context in which chapter 12 is set. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us run with endurance. Or some translations say patience, the proper pace. It's, it's giving you the idea that this is not a sprint. This is a, an ultra marathon that you're going to have to set in for the long haul. When the gun sounds, there's lots of adrenaline and excitement. There's a race that I've run before that the first mile there's a big hill and people are pushing past you sprinting and I just... I did it a couple times. I've said to them, I'll see you in a few minutes because you get to that big hill and there they are. They went out too fast because of all the adrenaline and the excitement. And once you get out on the course and there's no more people cheering for you, 
right? It's just you plugging along. It can get very discouraging. And your options are keep plugging along with endurance and patience and faithfulness or stop. Like those are our options. And this is the idea that the author of Hebrews wants us to, to kind of uh, conjure up in our mind of running a race with patience and endurance, looking to Jesus. Don't grow weary. Pastor Matt talked to us about that. The discipline of the Lord. The difficulties that are shaping us and fashioning us in the likeness of Christ. Jesus himself learns obedience through suffering. And now here this idea of lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. It conjures up in my mind this idea of a weary runner getting an extra surge of energy and saying, I'm going to lean harder into the race. I'm going to pick up the pace. I'm going to watch my stride. I'm going to make sure I'm hydrating well enough. I'm going to put a little bit of extra effort and thought into the race. And the language of verses 12 through 13 here are calling us to this same thing. It is the hard work of holy living. And so my first point, very simply, this is just a simple application sermon today. My first point for you is to run with grit. Run with grit. And that is what the author is calling us to here. We've seen how God disciplines us and the discipline of the Lord comes upon us so that we can be shaped and fashioned in his likeness, sanctified. There is we're under no illusion that the Christian life is difficult and hard. Jesus himself said it would be hard. And so here the author is calling us to apply a little bit of grit, a little bit of toughness to our running. He is calling us to the hard work of holy living. As we are growing in holiness and advancing the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, we grow greater as we walk in faithfulness. We grow greater in our resolve and in our toughness and in our grit. We are to run fueled. If you don't hear anything else I say today, you can hear this. We are to be fueled as we run by God's grace and grit. God's grace and grit. You want to know the key to the victorious Christian life? It is boiled down to this. It is God's grace and your grit. That's really what it is. It is God's unmerited favor given to you, and now what will you do with that as you run through the hardships of the race that is set before you? And as we've seen over and over in the book of Hebrews and throughout the scriptures, that the life of the believer is full of hardships and trials, these trials will be repeated, these hardships will be repeated until we see Jesus face to face. Peter reminds us that this kind of hardship should not be a surprise to Christians. He said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you as, as though something strange is happening to you. This is the new norm for you, Christian. Trials and tribulations, the discipline of the Lord is now something that should be normal to you. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, James tells us, because it's producing in us a Christ-likeness, a godliness. It should not be something that we are surprised about. It should be seen as normal. Jesus himself says that we 
are to take up our cross, denying ourselves, take up our cross daily to follow him. And the Bible is clear that it will be hard. The author of Hebrews has said over and over this idea of strive, make every effort to enter the kingdom of God. Strive and make every effort. And my question to you this morning as we begin to unpack this is, are you striving and making every effort to finish the race? Or are you being like Adam and Eve when confronted in the garden, blame shifting and making excuses? Are you making every effort? Listen, without grace, let me be clear. Without grace, you are simply not going to make it. We'll see that here this morning. But you also have to put forth some effort. This seems like it should be very plain and simple, right? But it's not. You would be surprised at how often we have to remind people of this as elders. Hey, you have God's grace, but you also have to apply some effort. It is hard work to be a godly husband and a godly father, a godly churchman and a godly man in your workplace. It's hard work to be a godly wife and mother. It's hard work to be a godly pastor. It's hard work to be a godly church. You have to apply some effort. Yes, without grace, you will not make it. But without effort, you will not either. And so many Christians get so whiny over this idea when when the topic of putting forth some effort into your faith is brought up. Many Christians get very whiny, and their objections usually are of this kind. They say that it is ungracious or legalistic. Well, don't talk to me about having to put forth effort or work, because that's legalistic. They never read the, the book of James, apparently. And they're mostly, I think, concerned not with a pure doctrine or a pure gospel, but mostly when you begin to dig down in these people's hearts, they're concerned with self-preservation. They're not concerned with a pure gospel, but they're just plain lazy. I would wager, listen, I would wager, I was a betting man, that most of your lack of spiritual maturity And the way in which you face hardship has more to do with this than you think. I would wager that the way you face hardship and your spiritual maturity has a lot to do with how much grit you have. Right? Which how much resolve you have. When trial and tribulation and hardship come upon you, In those moments, I think your faith is seen by your resilience in bearing up under those hardships. As I've said before, the key to the Christian life is simply God's grace and our grit. And I've actually heard professing Christians say, this Christian thing is just too hard. The standard is just too high. It's just too much. I just want it to be simpler and easier. And if some of us applied the mental effort and physical effort that we do into our workplaces, you would be a beast for the kingdom of God. If we applied as much 
effort and energy into actually living the scriptures instead of trying to take the scriptures and use them to our advantage to excuse our life, you would be a spiritual giant. You ever, you ever wondered at people who are like uh, criminals? It's funny. I always think when I see somebody that's like done something, they've, they've stolen something, they've broken the law in some way, I'm like, people work so hard to break the law, right? Like to do just honest work. Like if you took all that energy and effort in breaking the law and stealing something and coming up with this elaborate plan to rob the bank or whatever into actual just good hard work, like you'd be doing great. And in the same way, if we put as much energy and effort to actually running in faithfulness the races set before us that we put into all these other things like our work, like our self-righteousness, if we actually put our energy and effort into living out the righteousness of Christ versus your own self-righteousness, you would be doing wonderful strides in the race. But anytime we begin to talk about grit, when we begin to talk about work, whenever we call people to action, usually people have big aversions to it. And they begin to say, well, listen, listen, it's, it's, it's about grace, and I just need more grace. And yes, grace will see me home. Grace has brought me safe this far, and grace will see me home. But the author of Hebrews has been clear that if you don't put forth some effort, it is obvious that you do not possess God's grace. That is plain and simple what he is saying. And that if you stop putting forth effort, you will not make it. Just, just back up with me and remember the race. If I stop putting forth effort in a physical race, am I going to finish? No, right? There's a time limit on that sucker. Ian knows this. He was hustling to get done in a, in a race, right? You can ask him about how crazy he was to go run a race, a marathon at night on a trail in January. So you, you talk to that brother. I'm like, brother, God has not asked you to suffer in that way, but okay. All right? So often, um, when it comes to this, we find, we find people in two categories. And this is usually true when it comes to confronting any kind of sin. You find people that they, they want to, but they don't know how. Right? Like, I, I want to walk in, in faith and repentance. I want to run well. I just don't know how to do that. All right? I remember this one brother at, the, at Victory uh, who unchurched and he became a believer and I remember him coming to me saying, I just read in the Bible that I like get to give my money to the church. That's amazing. How do I do that? Right? He was so excited about that. I said, you need to teach a class, man, on, on generosity. He, he, he wanted to, he just didn't know how. So some people fall in that category when we talk about applying faithfulness and grit, applying uh, the righteousness of Christ in my life. I want to do that. I just don't know how. But the other category is, is very difficult to deal with, and we'll see this with Esau later, is that they do understand. They just don't want to. They do understand. They do get it. They just don't want to. And, and I, I, would, I would say that for our church, as one of your pastors, know you, knowing you well, shepherding you and loving you and knowing the things that you're struggling with right now, I would say for the majority overall in the things that you are trying to persevere through and over, that most of you fall on the ladder, that you know what to do. You just lack the discipline to do it. And because I love you, I tell you that. It's just, it's going to apply a little more grit. You don't need a new Bible study. 
book. You, you don't need a new class. You don't need to necessarily ask an elder a new question. You just need to do it, right? You know the number one thing that helps runners complete a race is saying to themselves, just one more step, just one more step, just one more step. Just continuing to be faithful. And I would like for you to think about those things in your life right now that you are trying to overcome, whether it's an addiction or, I mean, all sin is a problem of unbelief, but there's something that you're trying to learn. Maybe it's in the area of being a husband or being a wife or a parent or in your workplace or in your church, and man, you just are struggling with that. I would wager that it's less that you don't know what to do, it's just you know what to do and are willing to put forth the effort to do it. All right? So how do you, well, does this mean that we're just supposed to like pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps? And Pastor Jeff, are you just saying that like the Christian life is pull yourself up by your own cowboy boots? I'm saying, no, Jesus gives you boots, okay? Like you didn't have any boots. Let's make that clear. But now that he has given you boots, he expects you to keep those suckers polished and to pull them on and to use them. Maybe running shoes is a better analogy, but, right? And also then to help other people do the same, right? So yes, you're supposed to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, by the grace of God that he has given to you. You with me? All right, cool. Some of you look like you're asleep, all right? You've been given these things. You know, a problem defined is not a problem fixed, right? Oftentimes we, by God's grace, realize the problem. Okay, I realize this sin in my life. Um, and, and we talk about it. We, we confess it. Praise God for those things. But we got to kick this idea. Oftentimes people will say, well, realizing the problem is the majority of being able to fix it. Realizing the problem is like 90% of fixing it. And there is some truth to that, but the problem is, especially in our culture today, is people realize the problem, but then in realizing the problem, they don't do anything with it. And how often do we confess sin, but then we don't actually walk in repentance away from that sin, right? This is why the old school accountability groups are really crappy ideas. Because what that generated was guys getting together and just talking, guys and girls getting together and just talking about how they had failed. And nobody ever calling anybody to faith and repentance. Now maybe you had a good accountability group and they did. I'm not dissing all accountability groups. But I'm saying that that is the culture in which we live. Okay, if I'm going to have to confess something, I'll confess it, but don't expect me to do anything with it. If I confess sin, just give me lots and lots and lots of grace which in our modern church culture is meaning give us lots and lots and lots of excuses. And don't call me to walk in newness of life. And praise God for how we have grown. I'm not diminishing that. In, in biblical anthropology and father rule and being oriented toward the home and proper theology and so on and so forth. Praise God for that. Some of you are excelling in your hospitality. Some of you are making great strides in areas of evangelism. Praise God for those things. You've realized the need and you're making some strides. I'm just saying the author of Hebrews is now saying strengthen those weak knees, lift up those weary hands, and press in a little bit harder. You can do more than you think you can. And our culture is so obsessed with trauma and victim, victimhood and overall softness. And 
Christians of all people should be an example of resilience and leaning into the tape in the midst of hardship. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the horse and his boy, there's this scene where the two children and their Narnian horses are on their way back to Narnia trying to beat the, uh, the uh, oncoming attack of the evil Kalamans. They're trying to beat them back to the castle so they can warn them that the Kalamans are coming. And they ride hard, really hard. And just when they think they can't go any further or faster, all of a sudden they find themselves being chased by a lion. Terrified at the fierce lion who is snapping and clawing at their heels, they break into a gallop that they did not know they were capable of. And later they find out that the terrifying lion was in fact the great lion, Aslan. And in that moment, it was difficult and hard and scary and seemingly very inconvenient for those circumstances. But it turned out to be just the hardship that they needed to turn it up a notch. And this is what Pastor Matt was talking about last week. And this is where the author is saying, as the Lord disciplines us, as we face hardships, these are not opportunities for you to shrink back. These are not opportunities for you to say, I'm going to chill for a while. These are opportunities for you to break into a gallop that you did not know that you possessed. And God in his kindness looks inconvenient and scary like the lion that's clawing at their back, who even claws the young ladies back so that they will break into a gallop that they did not know that they possessed. And I believe that many of you have not broken into a gallop that you actually possess. You are capable, brother and sister, of much, much more for the kingdom of God. And what stands between you and that is simply unbelief. That's what stands between you and that. And it's going to take a little effort to apply it. God's grace and true grit are the simple ingredients to victorious Christian living. Number two, so we're supposed to run with grit. Number two, we're supposed to run with your people. Run with your people. You've seen this as a practical thing. If you're training, physical exercise, it's good to have accountability, right? Uh, very few people can be faithful in the areas of physical workout by themselves, right? So if you're going to run, they have uh, what they call pace groups, in running, where they have somebody who holds a sign, you've trained with those people for a long time, and you're actually going to run with that group of people. They hold a sign that says your, uh, your finish time on it, and they check, and they call out, and they keep you encouraged, right? I ran with Ben Johnson, most of you know Ben Johnson, last year at the Air Force Marathon. That was an event. That man cried and sang and called me mean names, and <laughs> all sorts of stuff uh, throughout that entire race. And if you know Ben, you know that's funny. Um, but we were encouraging each other together. Uh, I remember one hill we were going up. He's like, I got this hill. I don't know what he was listening to in his ears. We took off up the hill, and I was like, Ben, stop. Come. And he just took off, found him up there heaving and hoeing at the top of the hill. We picked up the pace, went back on together. All right, don't do that again. It's important to run with your people so that you don't give yourself excuses, so that you're properly pacing yourself. Run with your people. Your striving is not only personal, but also corporate. The, the Christian faith is not simply personal. It is also corporate, right? We've bitten into this big Eva idea that my faith is mine and mine alone. 
right? It's not corporate, but that is not true. We are community people. The Trinity teaches us that. Creation teaches us that. We need each other. That's why I had you look around at each other. You need these people. You are your Entrance into the kingdom of heaven is in part dependent upon the people around you. It is in part dependent on the people around you. And anybody that would say, I love Jesus and I don't need the church, is talking absolute lunacy. Because Jesus loves his bride, the church, and gave himself for her. I've said this analogy before. It would be like you saying, Pastor Jeff, I want to hang out with you, but I don't like your wife so I'm not gonna hang out with you, and so I'm gonna say, well, we're not gonna hang out, and I'll probably punch you. So, right? You need each other. You need them, they need you. Like, look around again, folks, do it. Turn around, look at each other. You may not like each other very much (laughs) at times. That's okay, I know you don't like me at times, and I don't like you at times. The church is a very strange thing. The body of Christ is the most unnatural, natural family that there is. All these people from different backgrounds coming together under one banner, right? It's, it's crazy. It's not uniformity, but it's unity. Like a body working together. But without these people, you will not make it. They are a part of it. They are a means of God's grace to you. Your striving is not only personal, it's also corporate. We are called to run the race together. This is a gift of grace to you. You are not alone. In the following verses, we see this, but let me remind you, too, that the book of Hebrews is full of this idea of helping each other out. Let me remind you of a few of these places we've seen this in our series in Hebrews. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hindered by the deceitfulness of sin. This is in 3.13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us Fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. There should be a concern for your brothers and sisters that they will fail to make it. You should be concerned about that. I want them to finish. I want them to make it. And that, and that affects how you interact with them right now. I want you to finish so-and-so. That means I'm going to have to interact with you at this point of the race in a specific way. And we'll, we'll see some of those things here in a minute. We see the value of running together. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sword of disobedience. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, this earnestness that we should have for each other. This is what we should be saying to each other, like it says in 611, that we desire that each one of you have the same earnestness that we possess in our own hearts to finish. I want you to have that same earnestness and that full assurance of Christ, of hope, until the end. I want to see you persevere, brother. I want to see you persevere, sister. Do you have that kind of of eagerness? Do you have that kind of of heart-wrenching focus for your brothers and sisters in Christ to finish. As you see these people here, do you realize that it is a part of your responsibility to help them finish the race? It is a part of your responsibility. He gives us here in uh, Hebrews 10, The let us do this, let us do this, let us do this, and we're supposed to help each other with that. Let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Hold fast our confession without wavering. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Encourage each other as you see the day drawing near. You're supposed to help each other with that. And this is the point that the author is trying to get at here, and he's, he's really kind of, as we're ending the book of Hebrews, he's really trying to drive this home for us. Every, listen, every consideration and every effort should be made to help everyone finish the race. I'll say it again. Every consideration, every effort should be made by you individually. Are you making every effort? Are you considering everything? And by everybody else. You are responsible for yourself to run well, and you are responsible for those around you. You are your brother's keeper, especially in the context of a covenant community in a local church. This is your responsibility. The strong to help the weak by bearing with them in patience and calling them to more. As Pastor Rusty preached, I don't remember if it was this one or it was a different one, this series is a different one, but we are to bear with people who are weaker and build, calling them to more, not letting them give excuses. The strong encourage the strong to be stronger. You are capable of more, brother. You are capable of more, sister. Allow this trial and hardship to spur you on to more love and good works. See it as God's love and kindness to you. See it that God has given you a promotion in his ranks. See to it that God has given you an upgrade in your suffering so that you can go to more and greater heights. Be faithful, be stronger, pick up the pace, break into a gallop that you don't know you have. Brother or sister, you are capable of more. You see this in, uh, in, in different movies. You know, I... I, I um, that one sermon I preached where I gave the analogy of Homer Bound, and y'all have been watching that movie ever since, which you should. It's a great movie. What, is, what does Chant say to him? I won't let you quit, Shadow. That's the responsibility that we have towards each other. My dad tells the story of a friend he had who was a, um, a pretty successful wrestler, 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 and, um, and he, uh, he was in a championship uh, tournament, and he said, uh, my dad's friend, who was the, the one competing, loved his coach, he said that he was facing a very strong opponent, and he remembers being pinned to the ground in the midst of the match. He's like, I, was, I thought I was done for, and, and my strength was absolutely just gone, right? It, I, I could not hold any longer. He was about to pin me, all the work, all the effort I put in to climb to this point, and I was about done. And he said he looked over just when he was about to, to he said it was just like, um, time slowed down, and he was thinking, I just, it's not worth it. I'm just going to give in the pain and the suffering and the hardship. I'm gassed. I have to give in. He looked over out of the corner of his eye, and he saw his coach on his hands and knees saying, smacking the mat, saying, don't you give up. Don't you give up. Don't you give up. And he said he was filled with energy and power and encouragement and he had this burst of energy to throw his opponent off and to pin him to the ground in a few seconds and to win the match that day. That's the kind of encouragement that we must give each other. And it is hard and painstaking because we are a stubborn and stiff-necked people at times, right? It's hard to love boneheads. It's hard to love people who are unlovable because they're just unlovely in their attitude towards you. But we are called to this. These are your people, right? The people that you have made covenant with, these are your people, and you have a responsibility to them. 
It's the kind of attitude that, that Sam Wise had when Frodo could not carry the ring anymore, and, and, and Sam says, I can't carry it for you, Mr. Frodo, but I can carry you. Are you willing to carry your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you willing to be graciously intrusive and get in their face and tell them that they are not running properly and they are slowing the pace and they are giving excuse for it? And if they stop, they will not make it. This is the responsibility that we have. Every consideration, every effort made so that everyone might finish. Do you have such people in your life? Sometimes we don't want such people in our lives because they require a lot of us. This is why people neglect covenant community, right? At the end of the day, people who neglect covenant community aren't concerned about, you know, the problems that are in the American church or whatever, yada, yada. They're just concerned about self-preservation. Everybody loves the account of, everybody loves the community of the church. Everybody loves the, the care of the church, but nobody loves the accountability of the church. Nobody loves the responsibility of the local church. And in a consumer culture which has given um, basically non-believers free reign in the church, this is very easy for us to slip into. So how are we supposed to run with our people and how are we supposed to run with grit? What are the instructions that are given? Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So, as we are striving with grit, running with our people, strive for peace in the pursuit of holiness. Strive for peace in the pursuit of holiness. Again, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, not the other person, live peaceably with all especially living at peace with your people, with believers. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul speaking, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to maintain what the Holy Spirit has already established. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us together as believers. He has already established this unity of believers. He has already established this peace of believers. It is our job to maintain it. All right? Are you eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Or are you eager to gossip, nitpick, and push forward your preferences? eager to maintain unity in the spirit and the bond of peace? Are you eager to do these things? Or are you eager to take offense? Are you eager to see all the ways that your brothers and sisters in Christ are not running well? Perhaps you need to see those things, and there is a responsibility there for us to do that and to be our brother's keeper and to point out the flaws in which they are running. Yes, we're supposed to inspect fruit. But sometimes it's really easy to Look at how poorly someone else is running to excuse how poorly we are running. So don't be eager for that. We have to be careful here. Now hear me. Don't fall asleep. Wake up. We have to be careful here to not make the mistake of thinking that striving for peace is an idea of living and let live. All right? It's, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, look, like to strive for peace, that means, so you're just saying that we're supposed to be graciously intrusive. Now you're saying we're supposed to strive for peace. So 
how am I supposed to strive for peace if you're telling me I'm supposed to get in people's face and tell them they need to run better? Like, we're just supposed to like let, live, and let, you know, live and let live, right? Like I saw this equality sticker, um, which was hysterical, uh, on the way over here, this equality sticker right in front of my car, which, by the way, an equality sticker is not for equality. It's, it's for their statement. Like You're making a statement, right? It was also very colorful and lots of different flags and so on. So there was no unity whatsoever on it, right? Like, it's, it's Christ or chaos. Um, yeah, I won't tell you what else was on the back of the car. I'll get down a rabbit trail. It's not saying live and let live. The Bible does not condone giving a pass to sin in the name of striving for peace. It's not what it's saying. A husband is not striving for peace when they are unwilling to tell their wife no, right? Adam should have told his wife no and stomped on the head of the snake. He didn't, so Jesus had to, right? That's not striving for peace. Wives are not striving for peace when they let their husband walk in disobedience and then they call that submission to their husband when they're unwilling to call them to repentance when they're walking in unrepentance. Parents, you're not striving for peace when you fail to discipline your kids, right? If God loves the people who he disciplines and you are unwilling to discipline your children, you in fact hate them if you don't discipline them. And the fruits of that are evident in their life. And many times their fits of rage and selfishness are simply a cry for someone to love them enough to discipline them. You're not striving for peace when you fail to discipline your kids. Church members, you are not striving for peace when you fail to call fellow members to walk in faith and repentance. That's not striving for peace. That's not keeping the unity. Right? And it's so easy to fall into this trap. It's so easy to fall into this trap. It's like, you know, it's like why poke the bear, right? Why, why, why say anything? Just, just live and let live and let it, let it go. Let people just figure out their own thing. It's so easy to fall in this trap. It's easy to deceive ourselves and say that we are trying to be loving peacemakers when we are simply too scared to call people to the only thing that will produce peace. What is the only thing that will produce peace? Hmm? Let's go back. To, let's, yeah, you're right. Let's go back to verse 14. He just uses a different word than righteousness. Strive for peace with everyone. And what is going to produce peace? And for the holiness, which with no one will, without, with no one will see the Lord. For what produces peace in an individual's life, what produces peace in the body of Christ is holiness. There is no peace with God apart from holiness, right? He's saying here, without being holy, you won't see God. Because God is holy, and nothing unholy can be in his presence. So if you're not holy, you're not seeing God, you're separated from him. Right? That's where we start. Pastor Matt's sermon, uh, several sermons ago that has stuck with us, there is no peace without what? Righteousness. It's just a false peace. And that's what he's saying here too. You can have a, a, a church that doesn't seem like there's any problems. But probably, and many times, that's not peace, right? It's just nobody's willing to go and to confront one another and spur one another on to love and good works, right? What's the fish? Cuttlefish? The codfish, right? Uh, I don't know if this is true or not. Some of you are like, what? Um, it just came to my mind, I'll say it. Um, 
you need people in your life who are like a codfish. Apparently, you can Google this. Um, Pastor Matt said it, so don't blame me that I got it wrong. He told me um, that fish on um, like commercial fishermen boats, when they get these fish, you know, that, that we end up eating, uh, they kind of become dormant and they don't move. So they put a codfish in the midst because it stirs them up and keeps them active. You need a codfish in your life, right? Churches that are healthy have people who are like that because they're unwilling to allow people to sit sedentary. They're unwilling to allow people to stop and drag their feet. They will come alongside and lovingly help them to run the race. Well, you need people in your life that will, what does it say in 10? Spur you on to love and good works, right? I think the old King James says spur. Like put on a pair of spurs on those cowboy boots and put those spurs into the flank so we can get some action, right? This is what it's calling us to. So don't, don't think that just because there's no problem in your home that you're pursuing peace, right? Maybe it's just there's no problems because you haven't started attacking sin. In fact, the way this works is the more you begin to attack sin, the more Satan realizes and comes against you. The more your flesh begins to push back and the more difficult things seem to be, right? Be very leery of times of peace when everything just seems to be good because perhaps you are just walking in a false peace and an unwillingness to pursue holiness. There is no peace without holiness. There is no peace with God without holiness. And this is why we must have the righteousness of Christ. And what matters when it comes to the body and unity is holiness. You wanna be unified with your brothers and sisters in Christ? You wanna be at peace? with your brothers and sisters in Christ, true peace, then call them to faith and repentance. Right? That, that's, that's what we're supposed to strive for. If we want to be, if Christ the Lord Church wants to be a united church at peace with one another and in unity, I think about, I think about um, the Spartans moving together as one unit with their shields, or the Roman Empire, who they would, they would lock shields together and they would work perfectly together. We want to be like that united under the same banner, united under the things that actually matter for the glory of God, not distracted, not nitpicking at, oh, so-and-so forgot to tie his sandals or didn't polish his shield quite as well. Working together, how do you get there? Well, it means you might have to go down to so-and-so at the proper time and say, hey, you forgot to tie your sandals. That's going to hinder us in the work that we're doing together. I'm going to call you to responsibility. It means going to one another and calling each other to holiness and striving for righteousness because without that, there will be no peace. This is the same way that we're supposed to pursue peace with our neighbors, our unbelieving friends, right? A peaceable person that, that is living for the glory of God will call other people, pagans, to holiness. And this is true love. This is true, um, as, as James would say, those who stir up strife are selfish, ambitious people. To, so be, to be the opposite of a selfish, ambitious person, we aren't going to turn a blind eye, but we are going to call our brothers and sisters in Christ and our unbelieving neighbors to walk in righteousness and holiness. And the legacy of a peacemaker is a harvest of righteousness. Righteousness. The fruit that comes from peacemaking in the Christian, com Christian community should be righteous conduct. We are to call each other to this peace that can only be produced by holiness, 
walking in holiness, walking in righteousness, creates a unity and a peace within our midst. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no sexual immoral or unholy person like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So how do we strive for holiness? And for this peace, we are to see to it, he says. See to it. Here's the instructions. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's what he's saying verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Make every effort. This is your responsibility, church. This is the responsibility that you have towards your brothers and sisters in Christ as you run the race. See to yourself. See to them that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Anybody who is not holy, will not see God, and the only way you can be holy is to receive God's grace, see that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See that no one falls away. One commentary says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no one falls short of the grace of God. And the idea here is being that of falling behind or not keeping pace with the movement of divine grace. Those who are not keeping step, who are falling behind, see to it that they are called to faith and repentance, that they are called to walk in holiness that you help them to do so because the danger is is that you don't, they could stop running and they might fail to obtain the grace of God. See to it. See to it that no one becomes like the person that's mentioned here is Esau. And we know Esau from the story of Jacob and Esau, but here he is used to represent apostasy. Esau here is used to represent a person who has turned away from the faith, who has abandoned the faith. This person who has abandoned the faith will not finish. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no one becomes like Esau, that no one becomes apostate. And the scripture here in in Hebrews, our, our series, has talked a lot about apostasy and what leads to that. This person will fail to obtain God's grace if they do not repent. And the author of Hebrews here is charging us with the task of seeing to it that no one stops running the race and becomes like him. As I said earlier, so so you are your brother's keeper. See to your fellow Christians' salvation. A faithful church will strive against idolatry and apostasy. It must do so. If a a church does not strive against idolatry and apostasy, then it will fail. It will fail. A faithful church must be vigilant to warn believers to beware and to take care. What are we supposed to help them take care of? How does somebody become like Esau? So often when we, we make statements, bold statements, like don't be like Esau, you're like, well, I'm good. I'm not like Esau. We talked in our class before in Sunday school, I'm teaching a class on um, the gospel in the workplace, and we talked from 2 Thessalonians where Paul says they were supposed to excommunicate lazy people. 
basically people who were not willing to work, uh, who were able but not work. And right away, everybody's like, does a quick check, like, okay, that's not me, it's not talking to me, right? But then we begin to discuss, how do you get there? How do you get there? So you're like, well, I'm not like Esau, right? He's, He's not talking to me, but what does he say? That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. This language comes from Deuteronomy 29. You can go there later and read it on your own. Deuteronomy 29, 18 through 19. Let me read just a little bit to you here. It says, Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away, not has already turned, but is turning away today from the Lord your God to go and serve other gods and those nations. Beware lest there be any among you with a root bearing poisonous, bitter fruit. No one who, when he hears, one who, when he hears the word, one who, when he hears the word, says in his heart that he is blessed, that he is safe, even though he is walking in the stubbornness of his own heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry. What he's saying here is akin to the sin of Achan, who took of the uh, devoted things, hit him in his tent, and it affected the whole community. Right? He's saying, beware lest in any of you there is a person whose heart is turning away from the Lord after other idols, after other gods, in particular a person who would examine their own heart and say, I am blessed of the Lord. Things are good with me. He blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This bitterness is a hard-hearted person who turns away from the Lord because of the idolatry of the heart. This describes a hidden seed that takes root and grows very slowly so that only time reveals an Esau. And in every church community, there is such seeds. In your heart, there are such seeds that want to take root and sprout up, that would turn after other gods. That's why I said earlier when we started, like, think about the thing that you're trying to get over. Think about the area of unbelief in your life. Think about the idols in your life that you are seeking to put to death. Why can't you, why can't you get over those things? It's either because you don't truly believe that God has given you everything you need for life and godliness, and you're just too lazy to apply it, Or it could mean, and it probably does mean this at the end of the day, that you just love those idols more than you love the Lord. And idols have a really sneaky way of deceiving us to say things like, in our heart, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So what is it that you're unwilling to give up? What is it that you're unwilling to put to death? In all of our hearts are such seeds. In every church is such seeds. And we are to be vigilant and faithful and ruthless to the sin, to expose it 
and to put it to death in our own life and to help our brothers and sisters in Christ put it to death as well. Especially in the good times, beware of these things. Especially in the good times. Never, my dad always used to say, I remember times being like, growing up, like, Dad, don't you trust me? And he said, I don't trust your flesh. He would always say that. And it's true. I tell my boys that now. Sure, I trust you and what Christ has done in you, but I do not trust your flesh. We should help each other cast off the weights of sin and the things that are hindering us from running the race and realize that in all of us are the little roots of bitterness that could begin to poison the whole thing. It is a little leaven that leavens the whole lump, Jesus says. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's a little drip that eventually gives way to a flow of water that busts the whole dam. And how often do we, even perhaps now, you're sitting here saying, that thing that has been brought up in your mind, don't, man, don't be like those who he is warning us against, who say, man, I shall be safe even though I'm stubborn. It doesn't apply to me. There's grace. God's grace. Here's what we're supposed to do as we continue on. We're supposed to root out bitterness and call out crocodile tears, all right? Kids, you know what crocodile tears is? Silas, you know what crocodile tears are? Yeah? When, when somebody cries and they really don't mean it, they show sorrow and they really don't mean it. At least that's what Google said. Um, they really don't mean it. We are called to root out bitterness and call out crocodile tears. 16 through 17, see that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a simple meal, for that you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau had crocodile tears. Esau had a false repentance. This is what the Bible calls a worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10 says this, Paul is talking to the church here at Corinth. As it is, he says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved unto repentance. Right? You gotta be so careful about this in your own life. When you confess sin, do you feel bad about your sin? Like the thing that leads us to confession often is we feel bad about our sin. We feel shame for our sin. And that's a proper thing. You should feel bad about your sin. You should feel shame for your sins. We confess that sin. But oftentimes what happens is the confession of our sin relieves a little bit of the pressure. Whew. Now it's out in the open. Okay. But oftentimes people only take that first step. Right? This is why a problem defined is not a problem fixed. This is why realizing the problem isn't fixing the full problem. Now you have to go walk in repentance. And you've got to be really careful, even in the confession of your sins, that you're just not confessing your sins to relieve the pressure. All right? That's called a worldly sorrow. Paul says, I'm not, I'm not sorry that, uh, um, I'm not happy because you were sad. I'm happy because your sadness and your sorrow and your grief and your conviction led you to repentance. That's why I'm rejoicing. He says, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered, uh, not the loss of us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Esau only was sorry for the consequences of his actions. 
He was just sorry for being caught. All of us have been in this position before, right? You see this with your kids. Are they truly repentant? Are they just sorry they got caught? They're just sorry because of the consequences. And there are still consequences, by the way. If we confess our sins, let's not make the mistake that the consequences are gone, right? Yes, we can be forgiven, and ultimately the consequence of death apart from God has been dealt with with Christ, but there are still consequences to our actions. It's a difficult thing when it comes to parenting. Your kid confesses something, but now you have to do the uh, wise part of parenting them through the consequences of those actions. And God does the same. Esau was only sorry for the consequences of his actions. It was a worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow will always lead to death. And the author of Hebrews is saying that Esau was not longing to repent before the Lord. Don't, don't make a mistake here in thinking that God is being harsh because it says he sought repentance with tears. God offers forgiveness to anyone who, re, who will repent. All right? He will offer forgiveness to anyone who will repent. Esau was unwilling to truly repent. His tears were sorrowful only because of the consequences of his actions. Peter's denial of Christ was followed by true repentance and then forgiveness. And you see this throughout the Bible, right? But Esau's tears here are not one of godly sorrow, but of worldly sorrow. He's only sad because of the consequences. And a godly grief that comes from God is characterized by what? Repentance. Repentance and righteousness and holy living. It's a sorrow and a remorse, remorse caused by having lost God's approval, all right? And, and, and it has a resolve then to be reconciled with God. That's a real, genuine, repentant, sorrowful heart. And then the conduct then that flows from that is holy living, Worldly grief is only sad that it has lost the blessing and it is only resolved to regain the blessing. That's worldly sorrow. I'm just sad I lost the blessing and I just want to get the blessing back. And oftentimes our repentance looks like that. Um, Rosaria Butterfield, who is a great um, author, I commend her work to you, talks about three ingredients for counterfeit repentance. Let me give you to these, these to you. Um, first, uh, we have a legal terror, fearing the consequences of sin more than the treason against God. So we fear the consequences of sin more than the one who we have offended. Uh, second, force of the will, taking vows that you will white-knuckle yourself into keeping God's law now. That can be a false repentance. Now I'm just going to do it myself and force myself to do this. Third, self-improvement, course-correcting being satisfied that you have made many improvements and you have left many sinful ways and now that is sufficient in your eyes. Many times we just make behavior modification and course corrections versus actual repentance. And God is calling, and God is calling us to repentance. As we wrap it up here, what, are, uh, what will hinder us from finishing well? What will hinder us from finishing well? So run with grit, run with your people, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You do this by being a peacemaker, calling people to peace with God, which is um, done in righteous living and in holiness. What will hinder us from running well or finishing the race at all? 
what's going what's to cause us from falling away. If we neglect these means of grace, we begin to slow the pace, stop up our ears from the encouragement of those around us to run well, start walking, and eventually stop altogether. And I'm, I, I know that the race is hard. I know that things are difficult. But man, it, it, is, it is scary to me to see people in my life and personal, in my, in my professional ministry as a pastor, to see them walk out this pattern. And it's so accurate every single time. And I'm sure other elders could give testimony to this as well. They begin to slow the pace, begin to make excuses, begin to isolate themselves, begin to uh, pull back from the scriptures, and then one more excuse and one more excuse, and eventually they stop the race. And I can't tell you how many people I've seen recently, a couple people, if I said their names to you, many of you would know them, who are now completely walked away from the faith. They, they, they say, some, some have said that they're still a part of the faith, but they're apostate because of what they're promoting. And others who have said, I'm done, and completely walked away. And, and the amount, like, I'm so surprised at how quickly it's happened. Like people that I was just in community with a couple years ago. And I'm baffled to see now some of the things that they're posting online or the things that they're engaged in. Like it's scary how fast people stop the race and then they're done altogether. And you say, what, what happened? Here's what happened. It was a small root of bitterness that poisoned slowly over time. And in their heart, they said, I am good. And the people around them did not love them enough to tell them they weren't good. And they needed to walk in repentance. And it's baffling how quickly it flows. So, so that we are not hindered, so that we can help each other. How do we do this? He says, first of all, something that will hinder you from finishing well is being at the mercy of your fleshly appetites. Do not be at the mercy of your fleshly appetites. Do not, let that, he says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal, okay? What he's saying here is that Esau, and if you read the story of Esau in Genesis 25, 29 through 34, this actual account, and just the life of Esau, you will see that he was a man driven by his fleshly appetites. He comes in from hunting. He says, I'm about to die. Jacob takes the opportunity because he's a sly one to uh, take advantage of his brother. He knew that his brother uh, was ruled by his fleshly appetites, and he said, uh, I will give you some of this soup some of this stew if you sell me your birthright. And Esau did it. He sold his birthright. He sold the blessing of Almighty God for a pot of soup. And oftentimes we do the same thing because you're ruled by your fleshly appetites. Are you at the whim of your fleshly appetites? Maybe, maybe you just need some more grit to persevere through and not say yes to every fleshly appetite that pops up. This is why Paul says we are to discipline ourselves. Discipline yourself to say no to your sinful proclivities. Don't, don't make light of your fleshly appetites. 
It's like the person who says, well, you know, I could stand a few, lose a few more pounds. And I always want to be like, then do it. Then do it. What's keeping you from doing it? I had a conversation with a group of brothers recently, a good conversation. We were talking about physical exercise, and somebody was talking about their schedule, and somebody said, well, how about you get something for your home? And I said, look, there's nothing wrong with adapting the workout regime and, and regiment to your home and your schedule and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you just have to do it. You just have to apply yourself. Say no to your fleshly appetites, right? So lose a few pounds, right? We have this attitude towards our spiritual fitness, as it were. People joke away and excuse their spiritual obesity, right? Excuses like, I don't have time, or I'm just a sinner saved by grace, right? And most people just won't kill their sin because it takes some effort. Don't make excuses. Don't make excuses. Just, uh, and if you're going to make excuses, just be flat out honest with them. Like, don't make excuses. Just be honest um, with uh, the problems in your life. Just be open. I, I, I appreciated one time talking to this gentleman who is no longer with us, who uh, when I asked him why he was leaving, he said, it's just the standard is for holiness is just too high here. I said, I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> you didn't make any excuses. It was like um, Allen Iverson was an NBA basketball player, and he never made it to practice and so on, and just relied on his skill. And somebody asked him after his career, they said, um, Allen, uh, why did you not lift weights during your career? And he said, because that crap was too heavy. <laughs> right? If you're going to uh, say reasons for why you're not persevering, then at least be honest, right? It, why aren't you persevering in this area? Why aren't you leading your wife well? Because that crap's too heavy. You help me? Right? You help me? Don't read into that comment, by the way, Chris. Will you help me? Just be honest and open. Gracelessness will keep you from finishing the race. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, he says in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This means see to it that no one uh, falls away and becomes apostate. Let me give you some a means of grace to aid you in your race and we'll be done with some subpoints. Matt got a long time last week, so I'm going to roll. All right. First of all, here's a means of grace. Gracelessness will keep you from finishing the race. All right. Gracelessness will keep you from finishing the race, so here's some means of grace. Number one, confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. How do we repent? I encourage you to read a book by Thomas Watson. Uh, I think it was written in 1668, a Puritan writer, on the doctrine of repentance. Thomas Watson, the doctrine of repentance. We're just going to give you a few points on how to repent from him. Because this is a means of grace. And if you don't confess and repent, you will be hindered in your race. First of all, sight of sin. Recognize your sin. Watson describes how through grace, the grace of God, the prodigal in Luke 15 saw himself a sinner. You have to realize that it's a problem. Watson says, before a man can come to Christ, he first must come to himself. Realize that you're a sinner. Sight of sin. Number two, sorrow for sin. The purpose of our sorrow is to make Christ precious to us. 
right? The, the reason that we have sorrow and shame for our sin is to make Christ all the more precious to the sinner, to drive out the sin with the overwhelming sense that we need Christ's mercy. And we, recognizing that we need Christ's mercy paves the way to Christ's forgiveness, okay? Number three, confess your sin. Confess your sin. So, so some of you got to do some work before you confess, right? Realize it's sin, be sorry for it, then confess it, right? Watson says we must voluntarily confess our sins in detail if needed so as to, quote, charge ourselves and clear God. No excuse is given. No blame shifting. I own this. True confession takes personal responsibility. We are not to blame shift for our sin on anybody, least of all God. Remember that blame shifting is the default move of sinners, right? So if you've got somebody that's making lots of excuses, it's a good indication that they are unwilling to walk in repentance. True confession does not play the victim. The next, shame for sin. Shame for sin. Watson says that sin hardens the heart, and a hard heart finds no godly use for shame. Watson reminds us that shame has made us naked, and when we love our sin, we languish in it, and we fall sway to Satan. In today's culture, the value of shame is definitely not seen. Make a hat that says, make shame great again. Because shame is needful to drive people to repentance. Shame for sin is needed so that Christ may be more precious. But our culture says to glory in shame. To promote shame. This is not holiness or righteousness. It says we are, our world is saying that we should feel pride in our shame, that our sin is noble, stunning, or brave, and it's not. If we're gonna have a revival in our land to bring us back to Christ as we stand in the rubbles of Christendom, we're going to have to show people the use for our godly shame again. That they would feel shame for sin and see the hope that there is in Christ. And Big Eva has done an excellent job at this. Apostates like Andy Stanley sit on their little stools spewing their winsome heresies, saying it's in the name of love, even in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, and sending people straight to hell with a gentle smile. There is no peace without what? Righteousness. We should feel shame for our sin. Hatred of sin is the next one. Satan wants us to love our sin. Um, in a manifestation of loving ourself. Um, Watson says, love for sin is worse than committing sin. Loving your sin is worse than committing it. To love your sin, he says, shows that the will is in sin. And where the will is in sin, the greater the sin. So, Loathe your sin, and then turn from your sin. We must point our whole being in the opposite direction of our sin. 
The whole posture needs to recoil and flee from sin. Watson says that the turning from sin is so visible that others may discern it. Your turning from sin, this is repentance, should be so visible that others can see it happening. This is going to be really hard for you if your sin has been your companion for many, many years. When it comes to turning from your sin, act quickly, act decisively, act fully. Mortify your sin, give it no quarter, cut off its head. Two more points. Means of grace, the Holy Scriptures. Do not neglect the Scriptures. Every problem that we have, I think it was Alistair Begg that said this, every problem that we have today in our culture is a Bible problem. It's because people have rejected the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Do not neglect the Scriptures. If you do so, you will not finish well, perhaps not at all. The third one, the church. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another as the day draws near. All right? CTL members, these are your people. It's okay to have other friends and family and people that you engage with. You should, but this is your church. Take care of your people. Take responsibility for them. It is your responsibility to to ensure that they finish well by God's grace. Be loyal to your people, all right? Be committed to building something great for God's kingdom with your people, all right? It's nothing but selfish ambition that makes people say things like, I just don't fit in at this church, all right? You have a part to play here. Don't neglect the means of grace that God has given you. I'll leave you with a, a hymn, because that's what I do, and then I'll shut up. It made me think, as we, as we strive in all these areas of the hymn, Soldiers of Christ Arise, and here's one of the verses. It says, leave no unguarded place. Are there unguarded places in your life where roots of bitterness are slowly festering and poisoning and will, if left unchecked, grow and not simply hinder you, but will hinder everybody around you? Leave no unguarded place no weakness for the soul. Take every virtue, every grace, and fortify the whole. From strength to strength go on, wrestle, fight, and pray. Tread all the powers of darkness down and win the well-fought day. Father, we thank you for your word, and I've said a lot of words this morning. I pray that your word would pierce through all of it, and Holy Spirit, that you would take the words of my mouth, um, and may they go down deep into our hearts, Holy Spirit, because you are the, the only true preacher that can convict us of sin and point us to Christ. I pray that roots of bitterness will be ripped out today, that we would confess those to you, that we would confess them to each other, that we would begin to walk in such a visible repentance that others would see us walking in holiness and glorify our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.